Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you about a terrific podcast called Time to Eat the Dogs. It's hosted by Michael Robinson, a historian, and it's about exploration. Now, if you're clever, and I know you are because you listen to the New Books Network, you can probably figure out why a podcast about exploration would be called Time to Eat the Dogs. Well, Michael has interviewed many scholars and historians and researchers, and he even interviewed an astronaut about their books about exploration. You can find Time to Eat the Dogs at timetoeatthedogs.com. What else? You can also find it on iTunes. As I say, we really love this podcast at the New Books Network, and we love it so much that we're going to republish some of Michael's excellent interviews. And if I would just stop talking, which I'm going to do presently, you'll be able to hear one of those interviews. So I'm going to stop talking. Sending out expeditions in 1919 to test Einstein's theory of relativity seemed pretty straightforward. Travel into the path of a solar eclipse, take some photos of stars near the sun, and compare them to other photos of the same stars. But these expeditions barely made it out of port. It's time to eat the dogs. I'm Michael Robinson. Today, Daniel Kenefick talks about the resistance to relativity theory in the early decades of the 20th century and the huge challenges that faced British astronomers who wanted to test the theory during the solar eclipse of 1919. Kenefick is an associate professor of physics at the University of Arkansas, Fayetteville. He's the author of No Shadow of Doubt, the 1919 eclipse that confirmed Einstein's theory of relativity. Daniel Kenefick, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you for having me, Michael. So in 1905, Albert Einstein publishes a series of papers, one of which I think is called um, On the Electrodynamics of Moving Bodies, becomes the basis of his theory of special relativity. What is at the heart of this uh, theory, and and why do you think it's so important? Well, one of the things that is most important about the theory, and this was true for Einstein himself, is that it answers or responds to a problem that confronted physicists at that time, which was that they were just beginning to realize that some of the quantities that physicists had been used to measuring and treating as observer-independent measurements, that is to say, if multiple people made the same measurement, everybody sort of assumed they would agree on the answer that they would get. They had begun to notice that there were, in fact, some issues with this. And briefly, these issues are concerned with the fact that it turns out that observers who are in motion with respect to each other may not necessarily agree about the Mm. measurements of certain quantities. And specifically, those quantities include things like lengths and durations of time, things that you might measure with a meter stick or a clock. And those were amongst the most fundamental quantities in physics. So it was troubling if it would turn out that you could measure them and disagree with another measurement measurer just because you weren't in the same state of motion as them. This is, of course, particularly relevant, for instance, for people interested in subjects like astronomy, because obviously, if you want to think about people in different planets making measurements of astronomical events, well, obviously, the planets would, in fact, be in a different state of motion, right? You obviously wouldn't have the yeah. same state of motion as someone on Mars. Uh, we're not in that position, but it was the sort of thing that people now 
at that time, 100 century ago, could certainly begin to conceive of happening. And Einstein realized, among uh, some other physicists at that time, realized that this was a problem. The, the problem had been highlighted by the structural differences between the mathematical theories of Maxwell's electromagnetic field theory and Newton's theory of gravity, for instance, as two examples. Uh, what Einstein's theory did was show how you can construct quantities which don't suffer from this problem, how to escape from the dilemma by constructing different quantities which are invariant between different observers. So whereas a length or a duration uh, are not invariant quantities and different observers might disagree, a combination of the two, known as a space-time interval, in other words, if you combine space and time, it's not just a measurement of space or just a measurement of time, if you combine them in the right way, you can have a quantity which actually different observers will agree upon when they make the measurements. And this was so important to Einstein as one of the successful features of the theory that he actually objected to the term theory of relativity. He said, if we were going to give it a name that begins theory of, we should call it the theory of invariance, because what I'm not doing is pointing out that we can't ever agree about measurements. What I'm pointing out is how we can proceed in order to be able to reach agreement about the measurements we make. Yeah, and in order to um, convince people, well, I should say, in the process of arguing this, he comes up with some pretty amazing claims for the behavior of phenomena, such as things like what happens to clocks when you're moving very quickly and things like that. And it seems like it even gets weirder with his more expansive theory of relativity, general relativity, which states that, or which begins to include things like gravity and acceleration. Can you talk about some of the bizarre predictions that Einstein's general theory of relativity makes? Sure. Well, as you correctly point out, Einstein was a very daring thinker. And at the time that we're talking about, 1905, while other people were beginning to grapple somewhat with some of the difficulties that I just mentioned about measurement, Really, for the most part, it was still possible for most physicists not to really let it bother them, right? They weren't having to reconcile measurements with somebody on Mars compared to somebody on Earth, so that wasn't really an issue. Nevertheless, Einstein was able to intuit the problems that actually would arise in circumstances like this. Uh, and what he did once he had his theory of special relativity successfully completed was realize that he would really go much further and come up with a general theory. And the reason why he would need that general theory, which you just mentioned, is that the previous theory in trying to compare observers in different states of motions restricted itself to cases where those two observers, though they're in different states of motion, are at least not accelerating with respect to each other. So actually, it doesn't deal with the case of observers on the Earth and Mars, who obviously are both accelerated observers. They're going in circles around or ellipses around the sun. So he realized, I actually haven't really answered my fundamental problem here, but how can I? It's a very difficult problem. And he realized one day that the way to do this was to use what he called the principle of equivalence. And for him, this meant the idea that accelerated observers were equivalent to observers who were in a gravitational field. So to talk about somebody on the surface of the earth, like a real astronomer, Einstein said, oh, actually, this person actually has two problems they have to deal with. One is that they're in an accelerated system, they're orbiting the sun. The other is that they're in a gravitational field. Both of these things 
can actually affect their measurements of time and space. And that, of course, was a completely revolutionary idea, which had not occurred to anybody else, uh, as far as we can tell, in the history of science. I was kind of, I was actually really interested in reading this, the degree of pushback that relativity theory got. I mean, it, I think it's become so acclaimed and uh, Einstein himself is such an icon that, um, yeah, I was just, I was quite interested in, in how many people were pushing back against it. Can you talk about why people uh, resisted relativity theory? There, was, there seemed like there were more than one reason. I think you're right. I think there were several reasons. Uh, of course, they it could easily be that a given person might be opposing the theory for all of the reasons, but there certainly we can distinguish several reactions. And uh, one is simply a visceral reaction to the idea of having to pay this much attention to relative motion. And people were saying, no, this doesn't really make sense. Time is, is something that differs from one person to another. That was a radical proposal of Einstein's. And then to follow that up and say, and by the way, just by standing on the surface of the earth, as opposed to being in space, your measurement of time is, is also different for that reason. That was very, very radical. And a lot of people simply didn't want to believe that that could be true. And then when you add into that, that Einstein, when he finally succeeded in 1915 in coming up with a theory which could actually permit you to reconcile the measurements between different observers, it was a very complicated theory, right? To do this kind of, or these kind of relativistic calculations uh, required very sophisticated mathematics. And it was beyond the level of training that many scientists, including particularly astronomers who, as you know, ended up being the ones who had to test the theory and decide whether it was true or yeah. not, uh, including those astronomers, that uh, they didn't have that kind of mathematical preparation and, and clearly resented the uh, fact that they might be obliged to go get it if this theory <laughs> proved successful. Yeah, I, that was actually really amazing to me that you have this whole generation of astronomers, observational astronomers who do this careful work and then this theory of relativity comes out and it's got things like tensor calculus in it and it's incredibly difficult to figure out. And that in and of itself is this kind of becomes this uh, screen for this generation of people. It made me think also, I guess, in, in current terms, I, I mean, I've, I've had some exoplanet scientists on, on the show Hannah Wakeford, for example, who's who've talked about how how much programming, for example, has become a part of the arsenal of uh, modern astro astronomers. And I, I guess where I'm going with this question is, God, are there any other fields in which you can actually, you know, achieve some level of success? And then people say, like, yeah, you really don't have the skill set anymore <laughs> to do these things. I don't know. That just struck me as amazing. I think it is an issue. It's a very good question as to what other fields may have these kinds of issues. But you can certainly see it in the history of astronomy in the 20th century, for sure. And I think there are numbers of examples that, that you could give in which people were confronted by this need to take something that's basically fairly empirical, right? We're going to look at the stars, we're going to measure positions of stars and what they're doing and how they're moving and that sort of thing. And then discover, oh, wait, uh, it actually turns out that it's so subtle doing these the calculations that might arise from these measurements that I actually I'm going to need a whole repertoire of skills and training uh, in order to let me accomplish the, the research program that I might set out for myself. 
uh, that's certainly uh, something that you can see happening multiple times in the history of astronomy in the 20th century. So in 1919, well, actually before 1919, when Einstein comes up with the theory of general relativity, he actually puts forward some some tests for the theory, one of which is well, involves looking at the star field around the sun during a solar eclipse. Could you talk about that and why it would be a test for theory of general relativity? So Einstein was very conscious of the need to have some empirical tests of the theory. Uh, certainly, that was probably something that was intrinsically important to him. But at any rate, he could obviously tell that people weren't going to accept uh, such a radically new theory without some kind of empirical test. And he realized that it would be difficult because the kinds of differences in measured quantities which arise because of different states of motion of the observers that I've been talking about depend upon the observers being in radically different states of motion, right? Uh, really, for the most part, the, the difference in speeds of the, of the Earth and Mars probably aren't big enough to make these measurements, measurement differences obvious. Uh, as you know, it really will be most obvious if you're moving pretty rapidly compared to the speed of light. Yeah. That's a very, very fast speed. And furthermore, even the gravitational effects are difficult to measure because, in fact, you need a very, very strong gravitational field. And for the most part, certainly by the standards of measurement available a century ago, the Earth doesn't produce a sufficiently strong gravitational field. So he was casting his eye around for possible tests of the theory. And he quickly realized that he had to look in the context of the solar system close to the sun because that's the strongest gravitational field in the solar system. And one of the most important insights that he'd had right at the beginning of his thinking on this subject was that the equivalence principle, which I stated a moment ago in terms of these different observers, accelerated observers versus observers in a gravitational field, is more normally thought of in a much more straightforward way. It says, oh, everybody falls at the same rate in a gravitational field. That's an idea that goes back to Galileo. And it was the idea that lay at the heart of Einstein's thinking on gravity. And Einstein realized, well, if that's true, then surely light itself ought to be affected by gravity. And he had some very brilliant and subtle arguments for this, uh, one of which basically comes down to his famous equation, E equal mc squared. He says if light has energy, that's the E, then it should also have mass, that's the m in the E equal mc squared. And if it has mass, then surely it should be affected by gravity. But how can we tell and his answer was, well, as light goes close to the sun, as it passes close by the sun, it could be influenced by the sun's gravity. That would cause it to fall a little bit towards the sun. And the result would be that it's deflected from its path. And so if we're talking about light from a star coming to the earth, skimming past the edge of the sun, the star would actually be in a different position from where we would normally expect to see it because of the presence of the sun. Of course, we can't see stars close to the sun in the sky because the sun is so bright. And so he quickly realized that we're, of course, living on a planet with the very fortunate characteristic that our moon is the same, exactly the same apparent size in the sky as our sun. And so we get these spectacular total solar eclipses in which the sun is perfectly blocked out, but you can still see the sky close to it. Around and so it, yeah. he said, let's try to look at stars, measure the positions of stars close to the sun during a total solar eclipse, and that might test the theory. So the thing that's so interesting to me about that is that there there were other tests, but we never hear about. I you know I read about them for the first time in your book. That actually mm -hmm. there was a 
that Einstein was looking at this issue of Mercury's orbit and that Mercury had this weird procession in its, its elliptical orbit. It kind of swung around like, uh, what do they call those things? And not an etch-a-sketch. Is it an etch- not an etch-a-sketch? I forget what they were called when I was a kid. Anyway, but that it would uh, that it would exhibit these behaviors and that he found that the theory of general relativity could actually explain it. And then this other one, which even seems more straightforward, is that if gravity is affecting light, and it's actually redshifting it, I guess, in a big gravitational field, you should expect to see some shift near star, uh, near stars, which you do see towards the sun. Why? Why do you think these other experiments, you know, never get talked about the way the eclipse uh, experiment does? I think there are certain reasons for that. If we look at the Mercury perihelion, and I think maybe the toy that you're thinking of is the spirograph. Yes, yeah. the spirograph. Yeah, That's so uh, as you say, uh, what turns out is that because, uh, and this is another aspect of Einstein's theory that we haven't touched on yet, but is worth mentioning, uh, Einstein, in showing how he could develop this theory of gravity, this theory of general relativity, convinced himself and ultimately others that the nature of gravity is to curve to change the geometry of space-time. And therefore, if the sun has a strong gravitational field, that means that the geometry of space-time close to the sun is actually not Euclidean. Uh, there's act- it's actually different from Euclidean geometry in the same way that the geometry, if I do geometry on the surface of the Earth, that's on a sphere, not on a flat plane, and therefore it's not actually Euclidean geometry. And, and for instance, that means that the ratio between the uh, diameter and the circumference of a circle drawn on the Earth is actually not pi, as it would be on a flat page. And so similarly, Mercury doesn't actually go through two pi radians in its orbit around the Sun. There's actually a little deficit angle because the Sun is warping space-time yeah. and the geometry is no longer flat Euclidean geometry. The upshot then is just as you say, Mercury sort of overshoots each time and ends up having this perihelion procession with which Einstein exactly calculated, and it was the first great success of his theory. But one important caveat was that astronomers already knew about this interesting effect. Uh, Einstein was, in that case, not predicting something new, but explaining a known phenomenon. And although, in fact, his theory made a very clear-cut prediction, there was really no wriggle room. He couldn't have just adjusted his calculation in any meaningful way to make sure that he got the right answer. But most people didn't know enough about the theory to know whether that was really true or not. So there was a sense in which that brilliant uh, and successful prediction of the theory, or retrodiction, or whatever we want to call it, although it was very impressive for those who knew about this uh, existing anomaly that had been unexplained up to that point, nevertheless, it did look from the outside a little bit like Einstein was just successfully manipulating his calculation to explain. Retrofitting his uh, theory yeah, to right. uh, what you see. And what about this, the uh, redshifting of light? I mean, that's quite easy to observe, in fact, isn't it? Yes, but unfortunately, easy enough to observe, difficult to fit in with Einstein's predictions in a, partic- in a quantitative way, not because of any difficulty with Einstein's predictions, just because of the complexity of the problem. Huh. Again, the gravitational redshift was something that astronomers already knew about. They knew that colors on the sun are actually a little redder than they should be when they look at spectral lines coming from the sunlight, for instance. But when they tried to specifically explain it in terms of Einstein's theory, they realized that you couldn't in any hard and fast way. And the reason is fairly straightforward. The sun, of course, is a hot gas, 
and elements of that gas are rising and falling in the solar atmosphere. And so sometimes you have some Doppler shifting. In fact, typically you have Doppler shifting, both red and blue, on top of the general gravitational redshift, which Einstein proposed. And so the result is that you would have to disentangle these effects from each other in a situation in which you have no independent way of knowing how fast this, the gas on the sun is rising and falling. So it can't count as a quantitative test of the theory, though in the end, people did realize that it was, in essence, a very strong qualitative test. It was pretty clear that overall there was this tendency towards a gravitational redshift of about exactly the size proposed by Einstein. But it never had the drama or was as convincing as the light deflection eclipse test because of this sense in which it was really a, almost a qualitative. On the one hand, it was both almost qualitative and on the other hand, very statistical in nature because the only real way to be convincing was to measure a whole load of spectral lines and then analyze the ensemble of them and that sort of thing. Hmm. So in short, it wasn't as clear-cut and convincing a bit of evidence as the other case. Another surprise for me was, you know, not only the difficulty of doing these kinds of tests that you're talking about, but the successful eclipse expeditions were also really difficult. And uh, yeah, I was quite surprised by how unsuccessful these eclipse expeditions often were and frustrating and really expensive. Can you talk about that? Yes, there's no doubt that it was a very difficult test to do. And Einstein himself was conscious of this. He wasn't making life easy for the astronomers, and he did want them to do the test. Uh, and we have a letter from him as early as 1913 to the American astronomer George Ellery Hale asking Hale, is there any way that we could do this test in daytime without <laughs> having to do the eclipse? Because he knew that it wasn't going to be yeah. easy. Uh, because total solar eclipses are visible only along relatively narrow tracks on the order of typically varies, of course, but on the order of 100 miles wide, they do take place pretty regularly. But at, at any given moment, you're going to have to travel to see one in any given year. And of course, you're going to have to be taking this very uh, de delicate and high precision instrumentation with you. That's not making your life easy. And you're going to have to set it up on site uh, without the usual observatory that you would have. So in short, it was going to be challenging for any astronomer or group of astronomers to perform and then you have to add into that, of course, vagaries of weather and the fact that the eclipse lasts only a few minutes. So you really only have one chance at it. And if something goes wrong, and of course, things go wrong in experiment, scientific experiments all the time. Mm. And what usually happens, of course, is you try to figure out what went wrong, correct it and do it again. But that isn't an option for an eclipse expedition. And added to that fact are the difficulties, the unique situational difficulties of doing this eclipse in 1919, months after the end of the First World War. How does the war affect this story? Uh, the war had a huge impact on uh, specifically the 1919 eclipse expedition, but also all of the other efforts to t test the theory that took place in the years preceding. Einstein's early success in trying to interest astronomers in testing his theory was with the German astronomer called Erwin Finlay Freundlich, who really stepped up to the plate, found Einstein's ideas fascinating, did have the mathematical training and background to really understand the theory, which probably helped. And he tried to go and test the theory in 1914 in the Crimea in Russia. The eclipse took place in that year in August 1914, and 
as you know, that's when World War I broke out a couple of weeks before the eclipse actually took place. And of course, Freundlich was German. He was an enemy alien in Russia as soon as the war broke out, and he was arrested as such, as was typical at that time at the start of a war. And uh, he never got to observe the eclipse. Now, he did interest at that time, and even a couple of years earlier, a well-known American astronomer called William Wallace Campbell, the director of the Lick Observatory in uh, Northern California. He did interest Campbell in the test. And in 1918, there was an eclipse which crossed the United States. In fact, it was the last eclipse to cross the entire United States before the eclipse, recent eclipse of 2017. And so Campbell had a wonderful opportunity in 1918. The trouble was that he also had gone to Russia in 1914. He wasn't an enemy alien, so he didn't get arrested. But the Russians had better things to do with their ships than than help astronomers get their instruments home. Yeah. And so his, teles- his, his telescopes were still in Russia in 1918, and he had to make, use with, uh, make do with second-rate equipment, which didn't do a very good job, and he never felt able to publish the results. And as a matter of fact, in 1919, the British had exactly the same trouble. They had not been able to get their equipment home from Russia in 1918 either. In fact, one of the interesting stories of the eclipse is that one of the English astronomers from 1914 was actually a Jesuit priest. His name was James Corty. And Corty had been refused permission to go to Russia because he was a Jesuit. It was forbidden for Jesuits to enter the Russian Empire. So he had had to watch the previous eclipse in 1914 from Sweden. And he did get his equipment home from Sweden. uh, And it was that equipment which was actually used in 1919. So In 1919, it was very difficult for the British to get the right equipment together, to get the people together. Cordy himself couldn't go because he couldn't get leave because of the war. Uh, They had to find somebody else, but they were able to bring his telescope. So it was very, very difficult to arrange to go. Had the war lasted even a few weeks longer, it's pretty clear that they wouldn't have been able to go. The ship that took them to Brazil, which was where one of the eclipse stations was, was, it seems, the first liner to resume uh, regular commercial passage from Britain to Brazil after the war. It was carrying troops, right? The Anselm? Uh, that's right. So these oh. ships were, were used as troop carriers and, and, uh, and in other military yeah. roles during the war. So eventually, two expeditions do leave on this one ship originally, one headed up, one headed for Sobral, Brazil, and the other for Principe, an island off the coast of uh, West Africa. What happens uh, during the eclipse? How does it go? Uh, As often as the case, they were threatened by clouds. In fact, Eddington was close to being completely... So Arthur Stanley Eddington was the leader of the expedition that went to Principe uh, off the coast of Africa, as you mentioned. Uh, Eddington found that clouds were prevalent in the sky at that time of the year on the island. And sure enough, it was very cloudy on the day of the eclipse. It did thin a little bit, and he got some star images in the very last couple of images that he was able to take just at the end of totality, but that was very limited amount of data. Had he been the only observer, it's probable that they wouldn't have been able to make a very definitive statement about whether Einstein was right or not. So in that sense, a lot depended on the results from Sobral. And there they were luckier than Eddington. They also were confronted by cloud on the day. But it seems that a hole in the clouds appeared at just the right moment, (laughs) just as totality was beginning, the hole moved across the sun so that they could actually see the eclipse quite well. They still had some troubles. They had two instruments with them, one of which was 
the instrument that they had hoped would do the best job because it had a wider field of view and therefore they hoped it would have more stars on the plates. But that instrument didn't perform very well. And in the end, they felt obliged not to use the data from that instrument. The backup instrument was the one that Father Cordy had lent them that had been used in 1914. And that instrument did actually perform very well. And it had clear skies. And it had another advantage that was, in fact, the reason why they had been so determined to go in 1919, in spite of all the difficulties that we just mentioned with the timing and the war and so on. And that was that uh, that eclipse took place when the sun was in the star field of the Hyades, which is the closest star cluster to Earth. So there were an unusual number of bright stars fairly close to the sun. And so that helped them. Uh, It meant that obviously it's stars that you need and the closer they are to the sun and the brighter they are, the better. And so that sort of saved the day. The fact that it was this uniquely good opportunity helped them overcome the difficulties caused by equipment failure and bad weather. So, you know, the interesting thing I found in this whole process, this massive attempt to get an expedition to prove uh, Einstein's theory of general relativity, which he really wanted, by the time the expedition actually gets going in 1919, Einstein no longer has to be convinced. He's actually completely certain already that general relativity is real. And the reason that he gives, or I should say the reason you give for him, is that he says, you know, this, well, this set of equations is just too beautiful for it to not be true. I was wondering if you could talk about that as a test of, um, I don't know, theoretical confidence. Yes. It's a very interesting case, there's no doubt. And even Einstein's friends and colleagues at the time commented upon the certainty that he had at the time of the eclipse expeditions in 1919 that they were going to come up with a result which agreed with his theory. And I think that there were two main reasons for that. One, as you say, is the beauty and the coherence with which the theory came together. The fact that in the end, when he had completed the process, which took him a decade or so, all in all, it almost seemed as if there really was only one answer, only one equation that really had all the requirements that he needed for the theory to actually do what it was supposed to do. So that experience seems to have profoundly affected him and to have helped convince him so completely that it probably was the right theory. But of course, a second reason why he was so confident would have been the beauty and the striking level of precision in his agreement with the Mercury perihelion advance anomaly, which had been observed. As I mentioned before, to others, that may have seemed to be a bit of a retrodiction rather than a prediction. But Einstein could see that the theory didn't really have any wriggle room. There was no choice he could make in doing the calculation which would have permitted him to make the match look so good. It really just fell out that way. Mm. Uh, So the experience of doing the calculations had this effect of making him so convinced that everything was right. And this aspect of the theoretical work that it, after all, also has its own, we talked earlier about the sort of training and skills that are needed to do theoretical work, especially theoretical work of this nature with very complex mathematical techniques needed. That, I think, is something that's quite an interesting aspect of the Eclipse Expedition. You can see it in the way that Eddington's views are so different from that of his fellow astronomers, who, as we mentioned earlier, are by and large pretty skeptical about this new theory. 
and and if anything are hoping that it's going to be proven wrong yeah. because they just don't want to have to deal with it whereas eddington was uh, much better able to appreciate the theory to get to grips with it to grapple with it and start to appreciate the beauty of it and one way of talking about that beauty is to say yes it provides us with these marvelous tools that we can do things we couldn't have done before this is very exciting let's hope this theory works out so here you have on the one hand people who don't want to have to deal with the extra complexity hoping the theory will fail <laughs> on the other hand people like i said in editing who can appreciate that the theory gives you powerful tools that didn't exist before hoping it will succeed and one of the interesting things for me about the whole story is that Today, you have many people who are critical of Eddington. They say, and maybe a little critical of Einstein, oh, too overconfident about his theory, and that Eddington also sort of wanted the theory to succeed, and they feel like Eddington was biased. But to me, okay, if we want to say that's a bias, then the other people, they had their bias the other way. Well, why is one bias better than another? It just reflects the nature of their different biases, reflect the nature of their own personal backgrounds and the way they approach the field. Yeah, there seems to be more to this than just competing theories. There almost seems to be a mm, methodological aesthetic or something that, uh, you know, people don't like things that are driven by theory and another group of people, or I should say that some of these observational astronomers don't like these thought experiments that <laughs> Einstein is doing, mm -hmm. driving everything yeah. from this uh, set of uh, mental experiments and it actually kind of leads to another question I had, which is, do you think that this aesthetic criterion of beauty is still important today? I mean, you're a practicing physicist. Do you see this being deployed as a kind of proof or a persuasion for different kinds of theories? I think that it still is. And as a matter of fact, Subramanian Chandrasekhar, who was a student of Eddington's, and who, in fact, has given us a number of the anecdotes which he got from Eddington personally about the eclipse and has written about the eclipse, and he's a, he's a major source for my book. In a book in which he collected some of his writings about the 1919 eclipse, he gave the book the title Truth and Beauty hmm. because he wanted to get at this thing, this aspect of physics, which was very important to him as a physicist, of the aesthetic aspects of physics you know the fact that yeah you may say to yourself well i think this is the right approach it's so beautiful it's so coherent i think it must be also true right? yeah and you can certainly see that today in the case of a theory like string theory which very much views itself its practitioners uh, its proponents view it as an inheritor of the beauty of a theory like general relativity because of the way that it seems to coherently package together many different aspects of other theories and gives us sort of powerful tools for certain kinds of calculations. And there are many people who are very uncomfortable with this and point out that, in fact, string theory seems to have had very little empirical success. So is this a possible case where we're being led astray by the pursuit of beauty when it's not being backed up by the empirical success which the 1919 expedition is probably the paradigmatic example of in the early history of general relativity. Yeah. Daniel Kennefick, thank you so much for talking with me. Oh, thank you, Michael. I really enjoyed it. That's it for today. The music was composed by Zabrat. 
make sure you check out the Time to Eat the Dogs website for podcast links and other exploration-related stuff. And if you get the chance, please take a minute to rate and review the show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps make the show visible to new listeners. And if you want to recommend a guest or make a comment, feel free to contact me at Time to Eat the Dogs. That's one word, lowercase at gmail.com. See you next week. Thank you.